We are continuing a series that we have been going through. through we've, we've covered the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and now we are in the book of Esther, and we're doing a series called Citizen Exiles. And if you're new to the series, um, or just really if you're new to the Bible, Esther is a book in the Old Testament, and it's right after the book of Nehemiah. So if you're turning through, it's, it's right after Nehemiah, and it's right before the book of Job. So as you're turning, it's, about, it's, about, it's near the middle of the Old Testament as you are finding it. But though it's in the middle of, of, the, of, the, of the Old Testament, we're going to talk about it. It's actually at the end of what happens chronologically in the Old Testament. So these three books are really the end of the history section of the Old Testament. And, and really the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, we're doing them together because they thematically really all do fit together and they take place in the, same, in, the si- in the same time period. And as the book of Ezra begins, which is the, sort of the, the earliest book that happens, the people... The people of God are in exile. They are scattered. They are, have been conquered by the Babylonians, who have then later been conquered by the Persians. So now they find themselves under Persian rule. And as Ezra begins, as we talked about earlier in the series, God calls, God's peop- God calls his people back to Jerusalem to go rebuild the temple. So out of exile, back to Jerusalem. And that begins to happen. It slowly begins to happen. But in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra, that this sort of return is sort of happening. So most people are still scattered, but there's this group that has returned now to Jerusalem. And then in Ezra, there's a six-decade break in the action of, of what takes place. And that's when the book of Esther occurs. So near the beginning, sort of, of this fir- right after this first wave of exiles had come back out of exile into Jerusalem, that's when this takes place. And the way we're covering Esther is going to be a little different than, than our, what we normally do. So normally we go through a book, just a chapter at a time, or you know, the next section following the next section, one passage at a time. And I think that gives a, appropriate safeguards for allowing sort of what, just sort of the message as the book and the logic of the book to unfold as sort of, you know, just one sort of progression at a time. That's our general approach. That's still the way we like to do things. But this book is different. And it's because the narrative of Esther really is different than what we see most other places. Because it's not a book that's sort of presented in a, in a logical sort of progression, but it's, but it's a story with twists and turns and surprises. And it's the story that sort of beginning to end, just sort of all these themes weave together as we see God's surprising and his sovereign deliverance of his people. And so what, rather than one passage at a time, what we're going through is one theme at a time to see how that's sort of presented and then see how that theme is not only in Esther, but how it applies to our lives. So rather than sort of, sort of chapter by chapter, we're kind of covering the book from beginning to end and then looking at each, each theme as it unfolds. So last week, we looked at the surety of God's deliverance for his people. Two weeks ago, and I encourage you to listen to this message, it's on iTunes or Spotify or on our website, but we really, we covered the whole book. What, what's, the, what's the message of Esther from beginning to end. Next week, we're going to look at God's sovereignty and how even though his, even though his hand is not obvi- always obvious in the book, it is clear that he is sovereignly working all things together. But Esther is the story of God's saving rescue of his people at one of their lowest moments in history. So as I just mentioned, they are in exile, they are scattered, they are conquered. And they are in exile and conquered because of their own, for generations, their own just walking in unfaithfulness before the Lord. And so though God is beginning to call this people out of exile, he's, he's calling them back to Jerusalem, the story of Esther takes place a long way away from Jerusalem, 
of Jerusalem in the, in the capital city of Susa. And in Esther, the king, so, so, so people are already scattered. This has taken a long place from where there's sort of this return happening. And in Esther, the king signs the death warrant of every Jew, young and old, woman and man, in his entire kingdom, 127 provinces, he signs the death warrant for. And he did this because he has an advisor named Haman who is ruthless and evil. And Haman's just really insecure. So Haman, though he is really quite high in the kingdom, there's a Jew named Mordecai who does not bow to him as he, as he walks by him. And because Mordecai would not bow to him, and really it's because this guy Mordecai wouldn't bow to him, the death warrant is signed, not just for Mordecai, but for all Jews. But what is unknown to Haman and what is unknown to the king is that Mordecai is the adoptive father of Esther, and Esther is the king's new and very beloved queen, and she is Jewish. And so Mordecai and Esther, they plan and they pray, they trust and they act. And within hours of Mordecai's planned execution, Esther reveals the plot against them by Haman and loyal and Mordecai's prior loyalty to the king is prior loyalty to the king is remembered. And then and so the king has this where he doesn't want this to happen, but 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 sort of he cannot revoke it, but but he basically says, Okay, well we can't revoke it, but this decree I made before that the Jews can sort of be targeted, well, now you can defend yourselves. And so basically if you're going to target the Jews, watch out because they can now can come back at you. So he allows for the defense, and Haman himself is hung for his selfish ambition and disloyalty. And so the, the edict is given so that, so that Jews are, he doesn't really want them to be a threat anymore, but if they are going to be a threat, that he's now allowing them to preserve and to defend themselves. And one of the, one of the themes that emerges in this book, and we're going to see it particularly in chapter 9, is not just that God preserves his people, though he does, but as he defeats Haman, and as he defeats the, 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 the attackers that we're going to see about in chapter 9, what we see is not just that he preserves his people, that God defeats his people's enemies. That God defeats his enemies. That the enemies of God aren't just something endured, the enemies of God are defeated. So one of the themes that emerges is that God always defeats his enemies. We see that he is both the God of peace and the God of punishment. So with that, again, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 9. And if you could stand as we read sections of chapter 9 together, as we stand just so we can have our attention solely on the word and just to express our reverence for the word of God. Just one note about the translation before I read. So the king's name, uh, you'll see at different places, Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Um, I think here in this morning you're going to see it, it's Ahasuerus. It's just written, it's the same character. It's written in Hebrew and Persian, different places. I'm going to read it as Xerxes just for consistency, but just wanted to, to note that. But here we see, so after the king gives this edict that the, that the Jews can defend themselves, we see what happens. Actually, I'm going to begin reading a few verses back, at chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. And I'll begin reading chapter 9. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command for his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. 
And many from the peoples of the country declared, them, declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, the edict to, to have the Jews destroyed, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain victory and, and the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Then verses 6 through 19 told of the numbers, the, just the, the destruction of the enemy. It was total in every way. There's just tens of thousands killed as the Jews defended themselves. And then the rest of the chapter that we'll begin reading talks about Purim, which is a festival devoted to celebrating God, delivering them through the destruction of their enemy. And it says in verse 20, and Mordecai recorded these things, verse 20, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the, of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for, for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and of gifts to the poor. Well, you may be seated. So again, the main theme we're going to be looking at is that God always defeats his enemies. Now, we, we live in a world, right? We just live in a world of just constant news, right? You don't need to go far to hear, you know, just news is all around us and news is constant. But, but there's there's categories, right? So there, there's things that we'll hear that are bad news. There's things that we'll hear that are good news. And then we hear a lot of news that, well, it really depends on which side of things you're on, whether this is good news or bad news, right? So certain stories, and you don't need to think far to think of many, that are just qualified as bad news, right? So the, the, the recent storms that, 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 you know, just destroyed sections of Florida and just deadly and damaging, I mean, you just have, yep, that's bad news. Like, that's just everybody's there, that that's just bad news. Certain news that I think everybody would hear and say, boy, this is, this is good news. I mean, just there was a reason people were celebrating when they heard the news of Maverick this morning, right? And there's just, I've read about a breakthrough this week in ALS, which is for treating people just who have Lou Gehrig's disease and just this horrible disease and just a breakthrough in treatment. I just think, yeah, everybody hears that and think, well, that, that's good news, right? But then there's certain stories and certain news that it really depends on who you are and whether this is good or bad, right? So you're going to hear election, you know, in a couple of weeks we'll hear election results and half the country's going to be happy and half the country's going to be upset and actually most of the country's going to be disappointed, but you, you get sort of what I mean by that, right? There's the sense of, well, it kind of depends on which side I'm on, that whether I'm happy or sad. Or Today, you know, certain teams are going to win. Steelers are not going to be one of them. Guys, it's just, it's just football, folks. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's just a game. Um, it's just a game. It's just a game when we're one and three and we're looking at a long, it's a long, anyway, it's just, it's just, yeah. Um, so, but depending on which side you are, you're going to hear somebody wins and you're, you're going to be happy, but there's going to be, you know, the other half that's going to be, ah, this is actually bad news because my team lost, right? We, we, we understand that this is the way it works. 
I want to ask the question, is, is God defeating his enemies? What, what kind of news is that? See, is that good news? Is that bad news? See, I would submit it's, it's the type of news that really depends on who you are. And while it's, it's good news for God's people, it is not good news for everyone. And there are many people who, who I think assume that they are they are safer than they really are when they hear news from that, that they hear it as good news, though they probably shouldn't. And this is the type of news that we need to evaluate ourselves and we must listen to and respond to accordingly with our lives. So we're going to talk about this with really three points this morning. So I have three points and then three implications or three applications this morning. Point number one is this, is our enemies are God's enemies. Our enemies are God's enemies. Little, um, you might know this, I, I found this out recently, or, you know, a little while ago, but the, um, that the deadliest, so you may know this, the deadliest, think of the deadliest animals in Africa, right? So you're, you, okay, you're thinking lions, or, you know, like some snake is the deadliest animal in Africa, so, but the animal that kills, so mosquitoes is the deadliest animal because of the way it trans, you know, transfers, but the this next deadliest animal is and it kills, more than, it kills more people than any other animal, is actually the hippo, which I wouldn't have known. But the hippo is the deadliest, is the deadliest animal, um, and you know, just, it just sadly kills more people than any of the other animals. And it was actually it was in southern Africa a few years ago, and we were taken, we had to go across the river, and there was no bridge. We had to take like a boat from point A to point B. And I remember there was a, you know, we were on the boat, and the captain, you know, he's, you know, he's talking to us, and he got real panicked at one point because he, we're there in the river, because he sees a baby hippo, and he has no idea where the mother hippo is, and so he's like, look, you got to find the mother, you got to find the mother, because the, the reality is, if you get, so the way hippos are brought up is sort of, there's usually physical separation between sort of the mother and the baby hippo, so you can't, they're not always like physically next to each other, but the mom always knows where the baby hippo is, and if you get between a mom and the baby, we'll just say, it's the, there's a reason it's the deadliest animal in all of Africa, because it's just, it goes sort of like, it just goes hippo on you, and it just sort of, it just destroys what it sees. And so this driver's seeing it, he's getting panicked. He's like, I don't see the, I don't see the mom. And so, so there's just, we eventually we didn't see the mom, but we got to the other side. But right, there's just this, this sense of like, you get between the mama and the baby, and things get deadly. So let me ask you, what, what, did, what did Haman do wrong that he ended up being killed? What did the people who came after the Jews do wrong? Right, you would argue they didn't come after God, Right? They weren't insulting God. They weren't sort of saying anything negatively about him. They're not banning the Ten Commandments somewhere. They're not saying you can't hang that. They're not doing any of those things. Here's what they did. They came against his people. Haman and all the, those who meant to attack them, they came against the Jews and God responded appropriately. See, it works both ways that they are an enemy of God's people because they are an enemy of God, and they are an enemy of God because they are an enemy of His people. But in the same way, you'd say, boy, that's how closely the mama is watching sort of the baby and identifies with this. This is hers. This is how, how closely he identifies with his people. The enemy of his people is his enemy. So we see that here as the book unfolds. We see that in places like the New Testament where we're Paul, before he was Paul, he's walking on the road after persecuting and seeking to destroy the church. 
And Christ stops him in his tracks and he asks him, Paul, why? Or Saul, why? Not why are you persecuting my church? Not why are you persecuting these people? Not why are you persecuting you know, the believers? He asks Paul, why, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Christ, in the book of John, says of his, of his disciples, that, to paraphrase, that the world will hate them because they are not of this world, but because they are of me. Listen, this isn't God's going to hate the person who cut you off in traffic and now you're mad at them because you ended up being late. That, that's not what this is. He, that's not the enemy of God's people. But the enemy of God's people on earth are the enemy of the God in heaven. And so from, from, from Satan to those who seek to damage the church to those who seek to keep it underground in China and who seek to tear it down here in America those who speak against the God who created by the word of his power, those who preach a false gospel, those who intentionally try to entice God's people into sin, that whoever they are, the shepherd of the sheep hates when there's a wolf loose and he will seek to destroy him. So our enemies are God's enemies. Secondly, we see this. God always defeats his enemies. So here we see that Naaman is killed. See that everyone who attacked the Jews was wiped out by, by the thousands. They're, they're not neutralized. They're not sort of you know, signing a peace treaty and a peace accord to, live co you know, to sort of coexist in peace. They're not just sternly warned to not come after them again. They are defeated and they are destroyed. Because this is what happens to those who oppose God. Now, at any moment in history, it may not appear to be the case. Haman appeared to be winning for a while. The enemy had the possession, had permission to kill for a while, but they were defeated in the end. And even those who think, no, they, they won because, look, then they win at the day. Even those who, who think they win because even they, they do something like create martyrs, that they, they win in a, in a sense in an earthly way. Well, history shows that whenever sort of the enemies of God have seek to, to kill the witness of God by death and destruction, that it only spreads, speeds up the spread of the gospel and their presence in heaven only proves that the attack, in fact, did not work that God always defeats his enemies. Their plans are always thwarted. Psalm 2 describes it this way. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Enemies come from every angle and they come with every agenda and they all end up the same way. God's record has always been and it will continue to be undefeated against his enemies. Third, need to note this, that Justice is good. Justice is good. See, I think we are so used to 
experiencing God's mercy, we can just get uncomfortable when something isn't God's mercy. But we need to be clear. God isn't rash. He's not arbitrary. He's not sort of petty, just holding up. Like He's not a kid on the playground. Well, you hit me first, so I'm going to hit you back. This isn't what God is like. God is holy. And when one opposes his holiness, it is injustice for it not to be dealt with. And God is a God of justice. And all sin and all rebellion and all opposition to holiness must be dealt with fully. And it is either dealt with fully by experiencing his wrath or trusting the one who came to bear his wrath for his people on the cross of Christ. But God must defeat his enemies. Not because if he doesn't, they might win. Not because, again, he, he, he's, he's petty. Not because he just, he just can't get over anything. But because justice demands sin and, a, and opposition and wickedness is dealt with. Now, it's, it's not fun to always think about justice, right? But it is far worse to think about God allowing injustice to reign. And injustice winning the day is not, is not mercy. Injustice winning the day is evil. So, God defeats His enemies. He defeats the enemies of His people every time. It is the story of Esther. It's the story of history. It's the story of today. It's the story of the future. So with that, just three implications, or if you will, three applications that I think we are to draw from God being the God who always defeats His enemies. Number one is this. We should hope eternally. Here's the reality for God's children, for His people, for His beloved. The enemy does not win. It does not survive. They, the enemy of God, seeks to destroy today, but their end is destruction. Satan is defeated fully and finally. Death is defeated fully and finally. Sin is defeated fully and finally. Already you have been forgiven from the penalty of sin. You are being freed from the power of, this, of sin by the Holy Spirit. And one day you will be removed from the presence of sin. Fear will be gone because it will be defeated fully and finally. Unbelief is temporary because it will it will be fully and finally defeated because you will see the goodness of God on display with your own eyes and faith will be turned to sight. Darkness was and is and will fully be shattered by the light. We, we, we just are so used to, in the here and now and in this fallen world, we are just so used to, to living in a world where the enemies of God seek to cling and derail and grab little victories and they, they, don't only, they, they try to in our lives, and they try to in the church, they try to in the lives of, of, of those we love. But Esther is just this just beautiful picture of the, the, temporary, the temporary reality is it appears the enemy is winning. The permanent reality is that God and his people are victorious. It is so in our lives, it is so in, histor it is so in history. We should be a people who are just our governing disposition is that we are filled with confidence and hope because God defeats his enemies. We, we, we live in a world 
that has just been ravaged by sin, the effects of sin are just all around us. You don't need me to go into any detail for you to think about your life for five seconds and just think, boy, how has sin just ravaged my own, my own story? How has sin just ravaged and the effects of it are just in, the, in everyone I love. There's just the damaging effects of sin all over. Justice will not be thwarted. Injustice will not win. God defeats all injustice. God defeats all who seek to oppose Him or His people. Secondly, We should repent immediately. Started off by asking, is, sort of the, is the news of God defeating his enemies, is, is that good news or bad? It really does depend on who you are. For God's children, it is glorious. But for those who aren't, it, it, it is the most sobering news there is. And yet, God is offering you, yet again, a gracious opportunity to turn from being his enemy to being one of his people. And let me be clear how this works. No one is sort of born into the kingdom of God. It's not like, okay, if you're born in the U.S., you're a U.S. citizen, that's the way it works. It's not, boy, if I'm born, born into this home with Christian parents, I guess I'm a Christian. It's not, okay, I'm, I go to church, so I guess I'm a Christian. I I'm, I'm, I'm sort of have a, a sense of morality, so that makes me a Christian. That, that's not how any of it happens. We are all born not as God's children, not as his people, not as his friends, but we are all born as his opponents. But God in his great love sent Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven to come to earth to bear the wrath of sin. And though he did nothing wrong, he bore the wrath, the necessary punishment for sin, the necessary justice being poured out for sin because justice could not reign, because injustice, because injustice could not reign. He bore it for all who trusts in him. And he now offers to everyone not enmity with God, to not experience the wrath of God, to not being God's enemy, but being his beloved child by repenting from, by, repent, which, by repenting which means turning from your sin and turning to God. See, God is so merciful to this world that I think it can be easy to, to assume that the default setting is just God's mercy unless you just go too far someday unless you're sort of this special exception that goes too far, that God's mercy is the default setting, it is not. Without Jesus Christ, every person is one heartbeat away, not from his mercy, but from facing his judgment. And one can fool a lot of people a lot of the time. You can even fool yourself. I was 19 years old before I came to Christ and I, I assumed I was safe because my parents are Christians, because I went to church. I generally knew right from wrong. There was you know, one brother who didn't get into any trouble and one brother who got into a lot of trouble and I was the one who got in like a moderate amount of trouble but because I wasn't one who got in a lot of trouble, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm good. See, I fooled myself into thinking 
that the wrath of God was not for me. But we are, we are not invincible. We don't sort of set the timeline of, okay, when am I going to be made right from God? I mean, I could look back at my past and just think, like, there were so many moments. Boy, if this, if this driver didn't veer a certain way, if this guy didn't slam on his brakes, I would have, I would have come face to face with the judgment of God I was so close to a state, I was, so, I was so close to a reality that I was completely unaware of. All sin is opposition to God. And God will rightly pour out His justice on all sin. And He either pours it out on Jesus Christ or He pours it out on those who never trust in Him. So the question isn't, do you feel safe because compared to others, you seem okay? Obviously at church, even most of the people you know, including your parents, are believers. That, that's not the question. It's have you turned from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he the center of your life? Because God will defeat all his enemies. He will pour out his wrath on sin. Please do not be one of them. Let me, let me also say this, that for all of us that do know him, repent of sin immediately. Repent of known sin. Listen, repentance isn't the punishment for being caught. It's the steps we keep taking to, keep, to preserve us on the path that leads to life. If you're not walking in repentance, it's not like, wow, you conquered sin. You're, that's, that's a sign of how mature you are. You're, you're not walking on the road to repentance. It, it's a sign that, no, you're, you're walking on the wrong road and you're unaware of the seriousness of it. It's not a sign of spiritual strength to not be walking in repentance. It's a sign of spiritual danger when you're not walking in repentance. So repentance is the road we all continue to walk. It, there's only danger outside the road of repentance. It's the lifestyle of his children, not a, not a one-time event. Repentance isn't like, I, I did that once, you know, when I was 19, I repented, so now it's just kind of walking, whatever. No, it's, it's, the, it's the road that we walk the rest of our lives. And it's the road we walk together. So let me just encourage you, if Get with a brother or a sister to help us walk this path because there is no life and there is no freedom and there is no joy outside this path. Thirdly and finally, we proclaim exhaustively. In chapter 4, Mordecai is appealing to Esther to act for his people and he says for for if you keep silent at a time like this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to, this, to the kingdom for such a time as this. Basically, Mordecai to Esther, is, he's expressing that God is going to work out the good of his people. But could it be that he has placed you and raised you up here at this moment, married to the king, to be the means of his deliverance? And obviously in his providence, we're going to be looking at this more next week, that is what, who God uses. And of course, Mordecai was right in the moment recognizing why Esther was there. 
But here's, here's the reality of the world we live in. We live in a world that is opposed to God. We live in a world that is under the temporary mercy of God. But apart from Jesus Christ, we'll face the judgment of God. And largely, they have no idea. So here's the reality. God has placed us in this community together because in His providential care, we are to be on mission to this community. That's why He has placed us here because we have neighbors, there are businesses, we have, we have co-workers that He has placed us with so that we can proclaim to them the news that they need to hear. He has called me to my family, the many if not most of whom who don't know Jesus Christ. He's called my son to his football team with, with the teammates he has. They, they weren't just sort of randomly there. They have all each been placed there by God to be, to be around him. You and your classes have been placed by your classmates by God. They aren't just randomly there. God has put you around the people you are around. He has put you in your neighborhood with your neighbors. He has put you in your workplace with your coworkers. And we aren't on a mission our mission isn't, you know, we want to temporarily help some lives be better. Listen, we, we, want to, we, want to, we want to love and serve. We want to do good works for our neighbor. We want to do things like helping with food pantries and helping with however we can help with mercy ministry. There are so many things that we want to do to help alleviate suffering. But our mission, the primary core of our mission is not to alleviate temporary suffering. We are on mission because the stakes could not be any higher and because eternity hangs in the balance. And he has placed us here now and called us to care and to love and to proclaim. And we cannot turn the heart of anyone, but we can love and we can warn and we can tell and we can go out in all humility because we aren't any more worthy of God's love than anyone, but we are the gracious recipients of it. And out of the overflow of his divine love into us, we, we, some of the overflow can be that that love pours out of us and, and it puts us on mission to go to others and proclaim of the love of God for them in Jesus Christ and the wrath of God that remains on them if they don't. And so we go and we proclaim so I want to have a family meeting in three weeks to talk about what's it look like to proclaim and to be on mission here together. How can we go in, in, in prayer and in unity and strength, even when it's you going to your coworkers, how do we do that together? How are we on mission together? But proclaim we must because God's people are called to proclaim the God of peace and the God of punishment, the God of mercy and the God of justice. And we will proclaim in faith that what he has done for us, he will continue to do in our midst and in the community around us. Let's pray. Father, I pray for really those, Lord, as we think of how you are the God who will defeat all your enemies, that you are the God of justice. Lord, we pray that this would give each of your children a, a boldness and a courage and a faithfulness to go to proclaim, to, to recognize that we live in a lost and dying world who need to hear the seriousness of the gospel, who need to hear the urgency of, of repentance. Lord, I pray that you would 
give your children a great comfort in knowing that injustice, it will appear to have a moment, but injustice will not win because the God of justice is reigning and ruling over all things. And God, I pray for anyone here who does not know you. Lord, would they, would, would they hear this warning not as, not as something that they can just ignore, but Lord, would they hear this warning as serious and significant? And Lord, would they hear this warning not as a, as a threat against them, but as an invitation from your Son who came and who suffered and who died and who rose again. Not so we would be your enemies, but so that we could be your children, that, they, that Jesus Christ would invite them to life eternal with him. So Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, who maybe even assumes they are safe, but if they were to look at their lives, they'd recognize that they've never placed their trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would give them faith and grace to do that today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.